In the context of Isaiah 9, the prophet has declared that God intends to punish Israel utilizing the Assyrians. The invasion of the Assyrians would be terrible and ultimately result in Israel's anguish and captivity. Amid such gloom and darkness, Isaiah foretells of the light of the Messiah who is going to rescue and redeem Israel and reign and rule over Israel and the world. Shockingly, Isaiah reveals that the Messiah will come as a child and a son. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. In short, the child and the son are the same. The two terms depict the two natures of this individual. One human and one divine. Now notice here it says that the child will be born. The verb born there refers to the physical process of producing a human offspring. As such, the Messiah will be of human descent. Previously in Isaiah 7.14, it was revealed that a virgin will be, called, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. As to the son, the prophet states that he will be given. The verb given here means to send forth. As Galatians 4.4 reveals, God sent forth his son born of a woman. The Messiah will be God's son, a position he eternally held. Now as the child of Mary, Jesus was fully human. And as the son of God, Jesus was fully divine. The joining together of these two natures, human and divine, is known as the hypostatic union. And that means that Christ remains 100% God while being 100% human. Acts chapter 7, verse 55 and verse 56 says this, But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the what? Son of man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's testimony is that the God-man, Jesus, was at the right hand of the Father. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Now adding a human nature to his divine nature does not mean or make him less than God. Christ is one person with two distinct natures. And furthermore, both of these natures were necessary for the Messiah to rescue, reign, rule over Israel and the world. 
Now, Isaiah here provides five prophetic names, five prophetic names for the child. In the Semitic culture, a name expresses the nature of an individual. Thus, Isaiah's use of these five prophetic names describe who the child is and what the child will do. And that's what we're going to look at here this morning, the five prophetic names of the child. The five prophetic names of the child. The giving of five names to this child is significant in light of the customs of the day. In Egypt, kings were given five names or titles upon their coronation. Thus, the announcement of these five prophetic names emphasizes not only his divine nature, but it emphasizes the fact that Christ is king. That the government will rest upon his shoulders addresses the kingly duty of the child. And that phrase, rest upon his shoulders, is figurative, denoting the robes worn by a monarch. Furthermore, verse 7 of Isaiah 9 states that this child will reign over his kingdom from the throne of David. And those two promises will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom when Christ rules as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4. Now it will come about in that, the last days that he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many people. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Zechariah 14.9 And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Also, these five names are also a denunciation against the Assyrians. Now remember, in the context of Isaiah 9, Israel's under oppression from the Assyrians. The first title, Wonderful, translates the Hebrew term Pele. The last title, Prince of Peace, begins with the Hebrew term Sar. By joining these two terms together, it forms the word Pelezar. The Assyrian king at the time was known as Tiglath-Pelezar III. And Isaiah's point is there is a future Jewish king who is going to be greater than the present Assyrian king. Now let's consider these five prophetic names of the child. These five prophetic names of the child. The first prophetic name given to the child is Wonderful. His name will be called Wonderful. Now by definition... Wonderful, Pele, depicts the extraordinary nature or of someone or something. We can translate this term as something that is beyond one's ability. The hiphal verbal form, Pela, of this Hebrew term Pele, means to cause miraculous things to happen. This Hebrew noun and verb are used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's miraculous acts in creation and on Israel's behalf. Exodus 15, 11. 
Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Psalm 77, 14, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. Isaiah 25, verse 1, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. He's a God of wonder. And his name is wonderful. You know, after learning of the angel of the Lord's announcement regarding Samson's birth, his father Manoah asked the angel his name. And in Judges 13, 18, here's the angel's reply. Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? The angel of the Lord declared his name to be wonderful, Pele. The same name given to the child in Isaiah 9, 6. Now in Judges 6, 14, the angel of the Lord is recognized as Lord, as Yahweh. Judges 6, verse 11 the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah. And in verse 14 it says, And the Lord looked at him, that's Gideon, and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of the Midian. Note that the angel of the Lord, in Judges 6, sat under the tree, and then it says, The Lord looked and said, This, undermi- or this underscores the fact that the angel of the Lord is the Lord, Yahweh. And that means that the angel of the Lord is one of the persons of the Godhead. Now as to which one, consider two thoughts. First, let's talk about the use of the word Lord. Capital L, small cap, O-R-D. The use of the small capital O-R-D in Lord is the English translator's translation of Yahweh. That's the Hebrew name for God. The regular use of Lord that we would see, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, is the translation for Adonai. So we see here, it's the angel of Yahweh. And the term angel, here's the second thing we want to notice. The term angel means messenger. Hence, the angel of the Lord can be rendered as the messenger of Yahweh. And what does a messenger do? A messenger delivers the king's word. Jesus is called the word of the Lord in both the Old and the New Testament. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. John 1, 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Therefore, the title angel of the Lord is none other than the second person of the Godhead appearing in a pre-incarnate form. The second person declared his name to be wonderful. And Isaiah prophesied that the child's name would be wonderful. Hence, the child of prophecy is none other than the second person of the Godhead in human form, Jesus Christ. And again, the name wonderful depicts the extraordinary nature of this one. And as to why Jesus is wonderful, consider this. He is wonderful because of his preexistence. No other human child existed before his or her conception except Christ. The Apostle John states in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the beginning refers to the beginning of time, space, and matter. 
the verb was is in the imperfect tense and communicates continual existence in the past. So we can render that verse this way. Christ, the Word, was continually existing with God before the beginning of time, space, and matter. Christ himself stated in John 8, 58, Before Abraham was born, I am. That's a statement or a declaration of existence before Abraham. Again, note the use of the verb was. Again, in the imperfect tense, indicating that before Abraham was born, Christ was continually existing. And then in Colossians 1.7, Paul states that Christ is before all things. The verb is, is in the present tense, means to exist at present. But now we have the word before, which is what's known as a temporal preposition that refers to an earlier time. Colossians 1.17 is expressing the fact that Christ existed at an earlier time than all things. And what does all things include? Time, space, matter. They were all created during the six days of creation. And that Christ existed before time indicates that he is without temp temporal limitation. Ergo, he is what? Eternal. So he's wonderful in his preexistence. He's wonderful in his birth. God created Adam's body out of the dust of the ground without the help of a man or woman. He created Eve's body from Adam's without the help of the man. And approximately 4,000 years later, God created a body for Christ in the womb of a virgin woman without man's help. Jeremiah 31, 22. For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman will encompass a man. That's a prophecy of the virgin birth. No other human child was born of a virgin without a human or without a male progenitor. Nevertheless, Christ was born of a virgin named Mary. And the means of the child's conception was a direct creative act performed by the Holy Spirit and God the Father, according to Luke 1, 34-35. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And additionally, his birth is wonderful, not only because of its nature, but because of its extraordinary purpose to redeem humanity from sin and the lake of fire. Luke 2.11, Today in the city of David there is born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So he's wonderful in his preexistence, wonderful in his birth, and he's wonderful in his life. No other human child was born without a sin nature. John 8, 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be the sacrifice for sin on our behalf. So that we might be the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.22 Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. In his life, Christ did only that which was pleasing to his Father. John 8.29 He who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 
as well, the extraordinary nature of his life, the wonder of his life can be demonstrated by the miracles he performed. Remember, the term wonders denotes God's miraculous power. Christ came and healed the lame, the blind, the deaf, and many more. Matthew 4.23, Jesus was going through all of Galilee, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Acts 10.38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, with wonder, and how he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And that miraculous power extends to nature. Matthew 8, 27. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The answer to that question is, He's wonderful. That's the manner of man he is. So the first prophetic name given to the child is wonderful. The second prophetic name given to the child is counselor. Counselor. Now, the Hebrew grammatical accents, and you can't see that in English, but take my word for it, the accents on those little words designate that this name is separate from the previous. It's two distinct names. He's not wonderful counselor, though I'm sure his counsel is wonderful. He's wonderful, and he is the counselor. Now, in the Old Testament, the king was viewed as the counselor. In Micah chapter 4 and verse 9, the text says, Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? See, people came from far and wide to be advised or counseled by the king. And by referring to Christ as, or the, the child as counselor, my, Isaiah was identifying the Messiah as the king of wisdom. Again, let me read you the words of Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 4. It will come about in the last days that he will judge between the nations, render decisions for many people. Right there is what we're talking about. As king, he's going to give counsel. He's going to give advice. He's going to render judgments. As well, Isaiah ascribes counsel and wisdom to Yahweh. In Isaiah 28, 29, the prophet states, The Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. Counsel, understanding, wisdom. These are all hallmarks of Yahweh. Job 12 and verse 13 says, With him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. Proverbs 8.14, counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding, power is mine. That Christ is the counselor implies that Christ is Yahweh. And as counselor, Christ is both Yahweh and king. As counselor, he is without equal or peer. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13 and 14. Or as his counselor who has informed him, with whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And informed him of the way of understanding? The fact is, no one. And Christ has no need to surround himself with counselors. Now let me explain to why. See, Christ is qualified to give counsel for four reasons. 
First, he's qualified because he is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24 But to those who are the called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is qualified to be the counselor because he is the wisdom of God. Colossians 2.3 In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Second, Christ is qualified to give counsel because he alone knows the mind of God. He alone knows the mind of God. 1 Corinthians 2.16 For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Third, Christ is qualified to be the counselor because he speaks only what the Father commands. He speaks only what the Father commands. John 12, 49, For I did not speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. John 16, 30. Now we know that you know all things, and that Christ has no need, or excuse me, have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. And number four, Christ is qualified to be a counselor because he knows all things. As 1 John 3 and verse 20 declares, he knows all things. So four reasons why he can be counselor. And that, that we have those here before us. And in the millennial kingdom, that is what he's going to do as king. He is the king of wisdom. He is going to give counsel. The third prophetic name given to the child is that he is the mighty God. He is the mighty God. His name will be called Mighty God, El Gabor. This is the third prophetic name given to the child. The term God, Elohim, means the great one or the exalted one. It depicts God as the one who is sovereign over all. Isaiah 54 verse 5, who is called God, Elohim, of all the earth. Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven. behold, I am the Lord, the God, the Elohim of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Nehemiah 2.4, the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God, Elohim, of heaven. He's sovereign over all. As Elohim, the term is also used in relation to God's work of creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 45 verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God, the Elohim, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. Did not create a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, there is none else. John, Jonah 1.9, he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God Elohim of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. As well, the title Elohim is associated with God's judgment. Psalm 50 and verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, for Elohim, God himself, is judged. Psalm 58, verse 11, men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God, an Elohim, who judges on earth. So the fact that he is Elohim means that he is the great one, the exalted one, the sovereign one. He accomplished the work of creation and he is judge. Now the term mighty can be translated as warrior. Warrior. Now there's some debate regarding this term. There are those like the Jehovah Witnesses 
who want to translate the term Gabor as the genitive of El. Thus, they want to translate this not as the mighty God, but as the warrior of God. Following that thought, the Messiah is not God, but one who fights for God. That is nothing more, folks, than a satanic delusion. The term mighty should be used adjectivally. Hence, El Gabor should be rendered as the mighty God or the warrior God. He's not the warrior of God. He is the warrior God. Now, we only need to look at the name mighty God as used elsewhere in Isaiah. The prophet used the name mighty God, El Gabor, to describe Yahweh. In Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant to what? The mighty God. That both Yahweh and Jesus are called mighty God within the same context demonstrates equality. Between these two individuals. Later in Isaiah, Jesus is referred to as both Elohim and Yahweh. Isaiah 40 verse 3, Clear the way for, the, for Yahweh, for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God, for Elohim. Jeremiah also ascribes the name Mighty God to Yahweh. In Jeremiah 32 18, Who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of fathers in the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, El Gabor, the Lord of hosts, is his name. So the child bears the same name as Yahweh. The child bears the same name as Yahweh. Furthermore, God is described as mighty throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the Gabor, and the awesome God. Nehemiah 9.32, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the Gabor, the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness. Psalm 24 verse 8, who is the king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the strong and Gabor, the Lord mighty Gabor in battle. Psalm 89 verse 14, you have a strong arm and your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. That God is mighty depicts him as the warrior king. In Exodus chapter 15 and verse 3, Moses declared that the Lord is a warrior. And as a warrior, Yahweh fought for his people and defeated their enemies. Joshua 10, 14, for the Lord fought for Israel. Verse 42 of Joshua 10, Joshua captured all these kings in their lands at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. And Zephaniah prophesied that it, when Israel is regathered and restored, that the Lord, will, God, will stand in their midst as a victorious warrior. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. So to name the child the mighty God is to designate the Messiah as the warrior king. 
And at his return, Christ will come as the warrior king with his army. He's going to wage war. He's going to strike down the nations. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. And he's going to tread the winepress of God's wrath. Revelation 19.11 I saw the heaven opened. Behold a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he what? Judges. He counsels. And wages war. And the armies which are in heaven. Clothed in. This is verse 14. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that he may strike down the nations. He will roll them with a rod of iron, tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Christ indeed is the victorious warrior of Zephaniah. He is the mighty God. The fourth prophetic name given to the child is Eternal Father. His name will be called Eternal Father. Now this name creates some tension. Does his designation, does Christ's designation as the Eternal Father undermine the triunity of the Godhead, which holds that God is three persons, one essence? The short answer is no. The statement Eternal Father does not undermine the Godhead's triunity. The name Eternal Father does not imply that Christ is the Father, the first person of the Godhead. Christ is the Son, the second person of the Godhead. How then do we reconcile then that Jesus is both Son and Father? Good question. Well, we have to dig into the text. Grammatically, the Hebrew term translated as Eternal Father is called a construct chain that shows possession. So we can render the phrase eternal father as the father of eternity. When we render it as father of eternity, we discover that it's a Hebrew idiom that depicts the child's relationship to time. He's the possessor of time. That is, though as the child, the Messiah will be born in time, as the son... He possesses eternality and is therefore God. It would be far better, I believe, to translate the phrase as father of eternity instead of eternal father. And let me underscore here, you may be thinking, well, is there really a difference? Yes, there's a major difference. These two translations are not synonymous. If he's an eternal father, that simply means the son is a father who lives forever. But when we say that he's the father of eternity, that means that he is the creator of eternity. Two different things. That he is the creator of eternity fits with the testimony of scripture. That all things exist because of the son. John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That means time did not come into existence without him. He's the father of time. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominion, ruler, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1, 10 to 12. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. 
and they all will become old like a garment, like a mantle. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be also changed. But you are the same. Your years will not come to an end. Furthermore, the phrase Father of Eternity underscores the pre-existence of the Son. Micah 5, 2, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are what? From long ago, from the days of eternity. This child is pre-existent. Pre-existence refers to the state of existence enjoyed by the son prior to becoming the child. Before taking on the form of a man, the Son existed in the form of God. Philippians 2.6 He existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Father and the Son didn't fight over their equality. In fact, before His incarnation, the Son shared the same glory as the Father and the Holy Spirit. John 17.5 Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He is the Father of eternity. He is the preexistent one. And finally, the fifth prophetic name given to the child is Prince of Peace. The Tsar Shalom. Now the term Prince, Tsar, does not refer to the son of a king. I know that's how we all take the word prince. But that's not what the Hebrew word prince means. A prince is a ruler who has power and authority. The son of a king may hold a royal position, but the son of a king has no royal power. But this term prince is a ruler who has power and authority. This ruler, this child, has the power and authority to institute peace. And peace is not merely the end of violence or hostility. It is that which encompasses harmony, prosperity, and security with God. Now, centuries before this prophecy was given, centuries before Isaiah penned these words, Jacob prophesied, in Genesis 49, verse 10, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. That prophecy foretold that the coming Messiah would be a king, and he would come from the tribe of Judah. Further, the scepter or staff, the symbol of that authority, would not pass from Judah until Shiloh comes. The term until means in perpetuity. In other words, the symbol of authority is going to go on until it culminates in Shiloh, which means what? The person of peace. Shiloh is none other than the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In his first advent, Christ made peace between God and man through his death and shed blood. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 and verse 20. Through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. Christ made peace between God and man through his death and shed blood. He initiated peace 
between Jews and Gentiles by sending the gospel to both and making us both partakers of the same blessings. Ephesians 2, 14 and 16. He himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, and reconciled them both in one body through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And at his second advent, Christ is going to return as the warrior king and prince of peace. Now how can this be? How can he come as both a warrior king and a prince of peace? Folks, the reality is that peace is not simply the cessation of war. That's why I laugh. Oh, we've got this peace treaty. We got that, but that, that, that. That's not peace. Well, they're not fighting. That's not peace. True peace removes the cause of war. And this warrior king is going to wage a war to root out the cause of all wars, which is Satan and sin. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he what? Judges and wages war. He's going to wage a war. And after he has done and abolished, put away Satan and sin, he's then going to establish his kingdom. And it will be a kingdom of peace. Isaiah tells us that it will be a kingdom in which the lion will lay with the lamb. Children will play with snakes. And on and on the description goes of the kingdom of peace. Be unlike anything we've ever seen. And in his kingdom, he will reinstitute his law. And his law will be the law for all. And all who obey his law will know peace. But those who are lawless will have no peace. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, I will grant peace in the land so that you can lie down with no one making you tremble. I will eliminate harmful beasts from the land. No sword will pass through your land. What did we read earlier in Isaiah? They'll beat their swords into plows. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out these commandments, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, fever that will waste away your eyes, the cause of the soul to pine away. You will sow your seed uselessly for your enemies will eat it. He's going to establish a kingdom of peace. And he will maintain that peace by enforcing his law. Isaiah 9, 7 goes on to say there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. The peace that Christ will establish will never end and never cease, but increase for all eternity. Friends, there are over 250 names and titles given for Jesus between the pages of Genesis and Revelation. Over 250. And in Isaiah 9, 6, more names are grouped together than anywhere else in the Scriptures. We have more names in that one verse than anywhere else in Scripture for Christ. Taken together, these five names embody the person and work of He who is both child and and the Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is wonderful. He's the second person of the Godhead in human flesh. 
who came and was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and performed amazing, extraordinary miracles. Jesus is counselor. He is equal to God. He is the king of all wisdom. And when he reigns, he will mete out just judgments. Jesus is the mighty God. He is the warrior king who has come and will continue to come to conquer and destroy all who oppose him. Jesus is the eternal father. He possesses eternality. And by the way, the fact that he possesses eternality means that he has the right to give eternal life to those whom he chooses. And Jesus is finally the Prince of Peace. He is the reconciler between God and man. Such is his name. You know, we sing the song, What Child Is This? We think of the question posed to Peter, Who do you say that I am? Indeed, what child is this? This child is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Who is he to you? In the words of Nehemiah 9 verse 5, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessings and praise. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, Lord, I thank you for this beautiful prophecy. Here in Isaiah, these five prophetic names given to us of Christ the child. And then, Father, these five names tell us so much about his identity and tells us so much about what he does. And, Father, it's comforting to know that the one who is our Savior is God, the eternal God, the just God, the wise God, the warrior God, the peaceful God. And through him we have peace with you. Father, I pray for those that may be listening Perhaps they've heard this verse before, but they've never considered what child this is. They've never considered who they think he is. Father, I pray that as they examine this verse, these statements, that they would see that the child laid in a manger, the son of Mary, was also the son of God, the eternal one, who came, who was sent by you, the Father, to reconcile to put away the enmity that exists between us and you. To deal with our sin. To deal with your wrath. To redeem us from sin and from spending an eternity in the lake of fire. And I pray that those listening, Father, there be one that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that, Father, hearing these words, they might consider again what child this is. That, Father, they might come to that place of repenting of their sin and putting their faith in that child. That child who is the Son of the Highest, the Son of God, who died on that cross, shed his blood, died, buried, risen again, according to the Scriptures. Father, I thank you that we as your children have an intimate personal relationship with this child. And we are co-heirs with him. We thank you and praise you for that. Thank you, Father, that we are at the same time a spouse to this child. 
the Son of God. And we as the church are his bride. What a beautiful relationship you have given us with him. And so, Father, we ask your blessing upon this sermon and upon the words that were spoken. And we ask it in your son's perfect name. Amen.